Uh, my name is Luke. Uh, I used to say I get to be a pastor here, uh, but I still get to be here. You know what I mean? Uh, me, me and my family, this is our house. We love to serve this house. We love to invest in this house. We love the people of this house. And uh, Hannah and my children and I, we've been around here for almost 20 years. Thanks, Josh. And um, we've served in various different ministries. I'm surrounded by just props. It's props. Um, and, you know, it dawns on me every time we talk about a hope offering or a Christmas offering. Uh, my family and I have participated in these special offerings above and beyond our regular giving each and every time. Why? It wasn't compulsory because I was on staff at the time, but because the law of sowing and reaping says you have not sown, you have not reaped because you may have not sown. And I want to encourage you that God's laws are yes and amen, whether you believe in them or not, whether you think they're culturally relevant or not. They are law. They are principle. They are baked into creation. And I would challenge you that if you feel as though you've been around here for an hour or a decade and you feel like maybe God hasn't answered on his promises, perhaps it's because you haven't sown into the ground. Perhaps God loves you enough to withhold because he wants to teach you that you have not, not only because you ask not, but you didn't sow into the ground from which you desire to benefit from. There's an additional benefit I get no longer being on staff. I get to challenge you a little bit different because no longer could you say, well, he has to say that because Pierre signs his paycheck. I promise you that if you sow into God's kingdom, if you take care of his house, he will take care of you. So I want to encourage you and challenge you in this Christmas offering to give above and beyond your regular offering that you would sow into this house, that it would be positioned well for the future and for our children. And there's going to be buckets on the way out that our, our, some of our ushers are going to be holding. You can take one of those envelopes in the seat back in front of you. You can give online towards the hope offering uh, or the, the Christmas offering. And I promise you that in our day, we will see the exploits of Jesus and those who sow will feel it a little bit different than those who choose not to. I want to be amongst those who choose to, and I know you do as well. So I get to continue in our series leading up to Christmas. And I brought with me a bottle of wine because uh, it's a day to celebrate in western New York. Our Savior, Josh Allen, has done it again. And it's not noon yet, but it's close. <laughs> no, actually, this wine is not uh, for drinking yet. This is a vintage 2018. I'm not a big wine guy. I'm more of a whiskey guy, but a good friend of mine is obsessed with wine. And the other day, we had them over, and um, they, they were explaining that they're, they're, they're in, like, these wine clubs. I didn't know this could be a thing. And they get all these reviews and all these things, and... It was said of this wine that you need to purchase it now because by the time it's ready to enjoy, 
it may be worth up to $3,000 per bottle. Pretty cool. Uh, don't come at me. I work out. Okay? And I'm just looking for a reason, usually. Uh, so this bottle of wine, but, but the interesting thing about wine that I'll get into towards the end of this is there is a required weight. Not W-E-I-G-H-T. W-A-I-T. There is a required weight to choice wine. And I would add to it that there is a required suffering of the fruit to produce choice wine that is required to wait. So we'll get back to that. But the idea of this whole series is from where did we come from? Where are we going? And in Jesus's lineage outlined in Matthew chapter one, there are some interesting characters and things to draw out that we can learn from. Pastor Pierre has been absolutely destroying either this tree or that tree or both trees. They look a, a little hurt. You got to go back and watch the YouTube videos. Uh, I, I don't know if we had first service of last week up, but that was hilarious. Uh, I don't know what he was trying to cut these with, but it, it was very dull. Uh, he did a great job kind of pivoting. But the idea was that, that the enemy of our hearts, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of creation, Lucifer, it, Satan, is trying to cut people away from the source. Uh, Lucifer, Satan, is trying to cut you away from the promise that God has over your life in Christ. See, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you choose to believe and have faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to die in your place for your sins, that you would be forgiven of sins from the past, present, and future, so that you can spend eternity with God, not by your own will, not by your own might, not by your own worth, but because of what Jesus did. If you believe in that, Scripture says that you are therefore a new creation, that you will spend eternity with God forever, and now, prior to that, you have a great purpose. The shortened Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's another wonderful quote that says there's the two most important days of your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. When you find yourself in Christ, you be can begin searching for that why. That I was born, you were born, we were purposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And there is an enemy that is after you and all of mankind to cut us away from that truth. Now, there are some other truths that we can see in Jesus' lineage, specifically from some women. Now, uh, I don't really study women. I study one a lot. My kids, you know, they're of the age right now that if, if I kiss Hannah in the kitchen, they're like, ew, stop, which just encourages me. So we go into the pantry and I close the door usually. It's great. The whole scene is wonderful. But, but I was asking Hannah the other day, we were actually at church, and uh, we, we come into the 9 a.m. service. You guys are rowdy, by the way. I like the 11 a.m. We might have to sleep in sometimes, and we, we sit right up there. And, uh, and sweet, lovely Carrie, Pastor Carrie is up here, and you know, she's like a cute pregnant lady now, right? And, and, and she's, 
And I know this about her at the time, and, and, and she's holding her, her belly. You know how the pregnant ladies are always like, holding the belly. There's like, there's like two, there's one under and one over, or if they're, they're just kind of within the first few months, there's like, and I, I, I whispered to Hannah, it was during worship, you really shouldn't talk to, during worship, but I was distracted, and, uh, and I said, Hannah, like, do pregnant ladies do that to signal to everybody that they haven't quickly, like, gained weight, that they're actually pregnant? Because if you're a fellow in this place, you've made that mistake once, Right? Maybe you didn't say it, but you thought, like, is she, I don't know. Are, hey, congrats. No, that, that whole scene. So I asked Hannah, is, is that why there's, like, the hand thing all the time for the pregnant ladies? And she turned to me in worship. She's like, you're so dumb. <laughs> she's like, no. Maybe in pictures, she said, right? She said, no, it's an instinct to protect And I got, to be th- I got to thinking about this idea of uh, God has given us a promise, many promises in Scripture, came to give you life and life to the full, that the devourer will not come against you, that if you sow, you will reap, uh, you will be rewarded in my good time. Right? There's all these different promises in Scripture. Your children will be great on the earth, and, and, and you will have no need, for I am your provider, and I will give you everything you need. There's all these promises in Scripture that you will be healed, that you can say to that mountain, go, and it'll be cast. In. There's all these promises in Scripture, but do we protect them like we should? Or do we allow the enemy to just cut us away from the promises? Now, there's five women in the genealogy of Jesus outlined in Matthew chapter 1. I want to focus on four of them because the mother Mary, she gets plenty of publicity. But I want to talk about the four. The first one is Tamar. Now, Tamar, uh, she was engaged to be married to the patriarch of God's people's firstborn son. So God's promise flowed through the patriarchs in ancient Israel. And Judah at the time was the patriarch. His firstborn son was named Ur. The Bible says that Ur did evil in God's sight, so God killed him. Interesting. Uh, And and just a side note here. I know that we love to believe in the God that is all love, and you are this beautiful, unique little snowflake, and God would never hurt you or harm you. Well, like God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's only because Jesus that he hasn't squished me yet right? So this is still the same God. And Ur did evil in God's sight, so God killed him. So Tamar was then promised to the second-born son of the patriarch Judah. It, it says in Scripture that the second-born son refused to give Tamar an heir, refused to sleep with her. So because of that, God killed him too. It's pretty extreme. But, you know, husbands, you got to participate. Not just in that. I know you're always willing to participate in that. I, oh, I feel a preach. If the only reason you're participating in your marriage is for that, get out. <laughs> Amen. Anyways, that wasn't in first service. You're rowdy. You, you, you're stirring it up in me. Okay. So Judah starts to think that Tamar is the problem. Because every person that's engaged to Tamar, God kills. 
So he says, okay, well, my youngest son's about 10 years old. When he comes of age, tomorrow you can have him. He, like, stalls. So Tamara's now kind of living in the household, but she's kind of starting to age out of the ideal age to get pregnant, and she's worried, and she feels cast aside. She feels kind of put in the corner. She feels a little bit forgotten. Maybe she feels like her time has passed. A little while later, Judah's wife dies, and according to ancient Hebrew law, Judah now has the ability to marry Tamar, but he's afraid of her because everybody that is destined to marry her, God kills. So even though legally Judah can marry Tamar, Tamar, and legally Tamar can marry Judah, Judah leaves Tamar aside. And some time goes on. And Tamar starts to get a little bit anxious that her time is going to pass and that the promise is not going to be for her. So what she does is a little bit unconventional. She veils herself. She goes out to the road, waits for Judah to come back from some rager sheep shearing party, buzzed, and she's like, what's up? Veiled. They sleep together. Judah thinks he's sleeping with a prostitute, just be a one-night stand, whatever. But come to find out, Tamar negotiated with him to take some of his personal property that only could belong to him. When she's found pregnant, Judah wants to kill her because he thinks that she's in sin, and she's like, surprise, whose is this? He's like, oh, that's mine. You were the... the." Now, we, we could naturally get this story a little bit twisted in our modern societal morality. But in ancient times, and according to Hebrew law given by God, it was perfectly acceptable for Tamar and Judah to sleep together and to have an heir and to hold on to the promise and to continue the covenant of God. And Tamar had to take matters in her own hands. She had to get a little bit unconventional to protect that promise and to be included in what she knew the promise was for her. There's no neat little lesson I have here for you other than sometimes we have to take matters into our own hands. Not sin, but sometimes we've got to be a little bit unconventional and act on the promise, especially if you feel like you're overlooked, cast away. You feel like your time has passed. You feel like it's over for you, that the promise no longer applies to you. Sometimes you got to get a little tomorrow. So next, a couple of generations go by, and we've got Rahab. Rahab is the next woman that shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. She's named in the Bible, which we need to pay attention to because back in those ancient times, women were typically viewed as only good for one thing, to have children. So when a name rolls up in Scripture, we need to pay attention. So Rahab... Israel, the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, are now absolutely rolling through the Near East. They're conquering lands. They're doing pretty well. They're overthrowing uh, all these different cities, and they're claiming all of the things that God promised that they would be able to claim. Joshua is the current patriarch of the time, and they come up against the city of Jericho. You remember the 
Sunday school song of the city of Jericho and marching around and the trumpets and the walls fall down, right? Most people know that story. So this is kind of laced in that story. So Joshua sends spies into Jericho. They enter into a house of a woman named Rahab who is known to be a prostitute. It's also known that she is the head of her household. She takes care of her father, her mother, her brothers, and her sisters. This woman is the boss. We know that she's successful because she has a home on the wall of the city. She's got a house with a view. She's got prime real estate. She's looking out into the countryside out one window, and she's seeing the skyline of the city in the other window. This is no red light district, bottom of the barrel person. This is someone who is handling her business. Now, keep in mind, she was not adhering to the moral code of the Israelites, God's people. She was a foreigner. So we can't superimpose our judgment on her way of living because her way of living may, in the sight of that society, have been seen as okay and clearly profitable. Some translators want to say that it didn't mean prostitute. It meant innkeeper. I think they're just trying to make it a little bit more PG. So what's interesting is the two spies come in. They stay at Rahab's house, and the ruler hears of these Israelite spies, these foreigners that have come in. uh, The ruler demands that Rahab send them out. She hides them. And then she begins to let them escape out her window, which is, again, on the outside of the wall. But before she lets them go, she asks them to make a promise to her. She says, I know the God that you come with. I've heard the exploits of your God. I've heard of the people that you've overthrown. I've heard of the cities that you have toppled. And I want you to remember me and my household. For this kindness that I have done to you, remember me in turn when you come and you march around this city. What's really cool about this story is uh, we know the part of the story where they come and, you know, seven times they march around the city and then the Trump and the raise the shit and all the, you know, the, the walls fall. There's recent, not recent, uh, in the late 90s, there's archaeological evidence that was dug up in that region. And they believe they found the walls of Jer- Jericho completely crumbled except for one small sliver on the northern wall who they believe was Rahab's. So what is this telling us? What is this saying? Rahab is not only saved by her household, but she's adopted by the Israelites. She marries Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, not Solomon, Salmon, who's an Israelite, and they have a child named Boaz. Boaz we're going to talk about in a second. But I want to I speak to the single moms, getting it done. I want to speak to people who feel like there's no sleep and ends never seem to meet. But you are making it happen, believing on God's promise. You're hustling. You're working. You're pushing. You're believing. You're hustling. You're working. You're pushing. You're believing. Your kids are in school. You're praying for them. You're standing strong. Like this woman should inspire you that she got it done and she saw an opportunity to protect that promise. So a generation goes by and Rahab marries Solomon. They have Boaz. And Rahab becomes the great-grandmother of King David. 
So now we have Ruth. She's the next one that shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. She's the, the third woman that shows up. Now, she was married to a Judean immigrant in the nation of Moab. Now, Moab was a, a pagan nation that Israel was against. But the nation of Israel was split into Israel and Judah, and there was a Judean descendant that found himself in Moab. Was he a traitor? Was he an immigrant? Was he an orphan? We don't really know. But he came from the line of Israel all the way back up to Abraham and therefore Adam. He finds himself in Moab. He marries this girl named Ruth. Then he dies. But his mother and Ruth become really, really close. The mother-in-law wants to go back to the nation of Judah because she needs food, she needs shelter, and wants to reconnect with her family. Ruth decides to go with her. Ruth could have stayed in Moab. Ruth could have stayed there and just kind of lived in obscurity, but she chose to go with her mother-in-law. She's a foreigner with no real family or lineage. She's just trying to survive. One day she's looking for a field to cultivate and gather food from. She comes upon one owned by a man named Boaz. And Boaz sees the industry of this woman, Ruth. Sees the stature, the confidence. He sees that Ruth has this ability to go get it done and focus on the things that she needs to survive. Ruth is not looking for a man, but Boaz is looking for her. And Boaz starts this little flirtatious thing in Scripture. And Ruth is like, listen, if you want me, do it the right way and ask me to marry you. I'm not playing around. I'm not going to frolic in the hay with you. Like, I'm here for the grain so that I can feed people. If you want to make this thing happen, you need to man up and you need to marry me. It's later said that in the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 31 outlines this distinguished, incredible, respected woman. And it's said that the words that Boaz says about Ruth, some of them appear in Proverbs 31 by Solomon hundreds of years later because he calls her such a capable woman. Ladies, I, I just want to say this to you. If you want a high-caliber man, you need to show that you don't need him. And gentlemen, if you want a high-caliber woman, do it right. Don't play around. Don't play games. Because she's not about the games. She's handling it without you. So Ruth calls him to act like a man and marry her. He does, and they have Obed, who ends up being the father of Jesse, who's the father of King David. Here's the point. Don't compromise on your promise. If God has spoken something to you, maybe when you were a little kid, don't compromise on that promise. Believe for its fulfillment in its fullest. Don't compromise in it. Last one, Bathsheba. Splish bash, she was taking a bath right up on the roof. Uh, and here's the other thing. I feel like this is like a, a man bashing uh, sermon. It's kind of okay because I happen to be one. Uh, but King David, it, it, the scripture says it, it was at the time where the kings went out to battle. 
See, there was a season for war. It was seasonal. And in that season where he should have been out in war, he stayed back and he sent his soldiers instead. Which, side note, gentlemen, if you're getting lazy with the battles around your life, sin is creeping at your door waiting to take you out. If you've stopped fighting for your children, if you stop fighting for your marriage, if you stop fighting for your finances, if you stop fighting, if you stop, we are built to fight the right things. And if you don't feel fight in you, it's probably because you're apathetic and you have hidden sin and you need to confess and you need to repent and you need brothers in your life that are willing to slap you around, get your attention and point you back to the fight. Okay? So maybe that's your call today. So King David has this lazy lapse of judgment. He stays home when it's time to go battle, and he happens to see Bathsheba taking a bath. And for the record, she was doing nothing wrong. She was doing absolutely nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, she was following Hebrew law and ritual cleansing. She was doing the right thing. David was doing the wrong thing. And David exercises his power, his authority, and his position, calls Bathsheba to him, sleeps with her, and she falls pregnant. As soon as he finds out that she falls pregnant, he doesn't take responsibility for it. He doesn't repent for it. He conspires to have her husband, who's in battle, be killed. So Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, dies in battle. Now David can legally marry Bathsheba. So they marry. However, the infant conceived in adultery dies. David and Bathsheba have another son. His name is Solomon. And he continues the promise. Scripture isn't clear whether David and Bathsheba ever truly loved one another. We don't know. But we can have our suspicions. But it's very clear in Scripture that Bathsheba protected Solomon. Multiple different occasions, the enemy tried to cut Solomon away from the promise. And Bathsheba was there to protect him. And eventually, that line would lead to Jesus. Here's the point. You may think that God needs a perfect place to land his promise. You may think that you got to be all cleaned up, you got to memorize the Bible or have kind of read it or you got to come to church or you got to tithe or you got to do this or you got to do that and you got to be all right and you got to be all religious and you got to be all clean. you got to be far enough away from your past. God's not looking for a perfect place. He's looking for a willing place. And you and I, we are children and heirs of the promise according to Scripture. So we've got to protect the promise. But it doesn't stop there. And we saw this with Bathsheba and Solomon. Isaiah chapter 5 says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, useless grapes, bitter grapes, sour grapes, immature grapes. 
And the question really is, all of the environment can set, be set perfectly. But if we don't nurture that promise and we don't nurture the fruit and we don't nurture the vine, it can produce bitter to no fruit. That you can be a child of promise, I can be a child of promise, and I can believe on all these different things, and I can say to God, God, I go to church. God, I, I, I'm a person of in- integrity. I, God, I, like, I feed and clothe my children. Like, I do all the, I've got the right environment set up. Why is there no fruit in my life? We become stubborn about it. There's a passage in John chapter 15. It says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, say it with me, you can do nothing. Jesus uses this illustration of a vineyard, which his audience would capture and get all the details out of. They would be able to picture it. They probably walked past them. Many of them were gardeners or farmers or worked at a vineyard or understood agriculture and farming. And and a lot of it gets lost on us. And in that opening line, he says, my father is the vine dresser. Now, there was a role for the vine dresser to play. In fall time, a vine dresser would come along and there wouldn't be any grapes on the tree yet. But the vine dresser would walk up and down the vineyard and he would be looking for a dead wood. He would be looking for uh, infestation of insects. Or he could tell that there was shoots of this vine that were never going to make it. They weren't going to see another season. And they were pulling energy and nutrients and sugar and life from the vine to really just be wasted. And a vine dresser would come along in the fall and sometimes early spring and clip things away from the vine. Now, if the vine had a personality and if the vine had a voice, the vine might say, no, 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 no. I like that's been with me for a long time. I'm comfortable with that. Like I've learned to make that work. Or I kind of work around it or I kind of ignore it or I just learn to accept it or receive it or, or take it. No, that dead thing, no, 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 don't, don't take that away. Or the vine would say, no, 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 I'm still, I'm still grieving. I'm, I'm still, you know, it's, it happened a long time ago, but it's just, it's part of who I am now. So why would you ever take that away? But the vine doesn't know that that is taking life from that vine. And that the fruit eventually will be impacted because so much energy goes into something that never gives back. So what may seem cruel is motivated by love and fruitfulness. Because if you remember in the beginning of creation, God's original intent for you and I, mankind, be fruitful and multiply. Yes, have families. Yes, have children. But be fruitful to bless 
the world. You remember the Abrahamic covenant, the agreement between God and Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, of which we are included. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can have fruit. I'm going to bless you so that you can give of your life. You can be productive that benefits other people. So I have to cut this away. I know you think it's part of you. I know that it was there for a season. I know that in the past it even bore fruit, but it's not anymore. You need to come to the realization. You need to realize that that thing in the past, that relationship of the past, that mindset of the past, it's dead wood and God wants to get rid of it in your life. Not to punish you and not because he's cruel, but because he knows that you are a child of the promise and you need to bear fruit. The second thing that a vine dresser would do in ancient days and even in these days is usually in early summer, the vine would begin to grow. And it would begin to pull all the nutrients from the soil and the sun and the rain. And it would begin to, to shoot all of these different crazy vines all over the place. All these wild growths with all kinds of zeal and excitement and opportunities. And, and these vines would, would, would shoot out, but as they would get heavier and heavier and heavier, the vine dresser knew that they would fall under the vine and not see the sun or be picked off by animals on the ground. So what the vine dresser would do is he would take a little piece of string and he would tie that little zealous, excited, new growth. And he would tie it to something more established and something more mature so that vine would know the direction to grow. Now, if the vine had a personality and a voice... That little shoot would say, whoa, 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 we're having fun here. We're excited. Why are, this is so restraining and restricting all of these rules and advice and wisdom that you're giving me. And they, what? No, don't tell me what to do. Don't restrain me. Don't, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. Watch me and see. And the vine dresser would say, you young, eager fool. Whether you're young in your faith or young in your career or young as a parent or a newlywed couple, you need to attach yourself and allow God to tie you to the more mature. You need to allow yourself to be restrained. You need to receive that wisdom and be in areas where you're spoken into and you're challenged and you're rebuked. I don't know where my life would be without Pastor Pierre, Jim Falwell. I don't know where my life would be without our small group who's become best friends. I don't know where my life would be because I'll tell you what, I'm a zealous dude. I'd be pursuing all kinds of dumb stuff that in the moment I thought was right. And a vine dresser sometimes, it feels like, God, where... And I was growing so fast. I was going places, and I was excelling, and I was getting promotions, and I was going places. And God, things have slowed way, way, way down. So here's the interesting thing about this wine. 
this wine grows in some very ideal conditions in the Napa Valley in California. Now, the ground is not soil rich like uh, cornfield or wheat. You know, sometimes you'll be driving out in the country and it's newly plowed. And it's, the soil's almost black. It's got so many nutrients. Good grapes don't grow in nutrient-rich soil. See, the vineyard that this comes from has a very, uh, I, I forgot the exact word, but there's a lot of aggregate. There's a lot of stone, crushed stone in its soil. And it allows the rains to drain quickly that the grapes don't receive too much water too quick. It's also facing a hillside that gets the right amount of sun, not the maximum amount of sun, the right amount of sun. See, the greatest grapes come from the biggest struggle. The stormiest seasons are typically the seasons of the most choice grapes. And 2018 was a particularly stormy season in this part of the Napa Valley. And the grapes, in their struggle, became extremely valuable. And the vine dressers, uh, they paid very uh, careful attention to that year. Pruning and picking and tying and caring for it, warding off pests. And maybe they were praying, I don't know. And it came time to, to harvest the grapes, and, and they were harvested with care. And, and then the grapes were crushed. And they were put in huge 57 gallon barrels to age in a cellar for two years. Then after those two years in a cellar in darkness with a whole bunch of other grapes, they finally landed in a bottle. And this bottle was sold for a few hundred dollars because the season was so great. And the tasting was so exquisite. But they say about this wine that it will not fully mature. That it really, if you can help it, you should not open this bottle of wine until 2038 when it'll be at its prime. So for 20 years, the promise sits in a dark cellar. It's not visited very often. It's remembered occasionally. Maybe when the family gathers, there's a bit of a countdown. But here it sits. This is the most light it's seen in years. And it's going to go back into a cellar this afternoon. But by 2038, this bottle will be worth thousands of dollars because it waited. The promise that the storm brings, 
the promise that the rocky soil brings, the promise of the rain, the promise of the sun, is a promise that requires a wait. And maybe you feel like you're waiting. Maybe you've protected that promise and you believe on what God has for you and you've heard it spoken a thousand times and you've read it thousands more. And it's just not happening. But God hasn't left you or abandoned you. You haven't spoiled the promise. You've protected it. Maybe you're nurturing it. Maybe you need to allow God to prune some things away. Maybe you need to allow him to tie you to something greater. Maybe you've wandered from the vine and God wants to bring you back again. But you will never be able to avoid the wait. Because it's in the wait where real maturity is found. And this wine, This wine is not destined for any common table or trivial celebration. This wine, this wine's for that special occasion. This wine is meant to be celebrated at the right moment. This is the kind of wine that's destined for a king's table. That's what you are destined for. Let's pray. God, we wait. We wait on you. God, in a season of waiting, in a season where it feels like there's all kinds of pruning and tying us down, and God, for those that don't even believe that the promise applies to them, God, we thank you that you are a God of promise. You are the God that is with us in the cellar. God, you are the God that is with us in the darkness. You're the one that's with us in the valley. God, give us the courage to wait on you, to wait on you, to wait on you, to wait on you. God, you haven't left us. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't forgotten us. God, we are children of the promise. Thank you that we are co-heirs with Christ. Thank you that no weapon formed against us will prosper. God, we thank you that you are the good gardener. We thank you that we are children of the promise and we wait on you. We honor you and we love you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.